Galatians 5, 16 through 26 tells us, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us here at River Oaks today. We're delighted that you've come. We are continuing our study this morning on the theme called We Are, Values That Define Us. And if you're wondering why we would study a topic like this, it might help to open your bulletin just for a moment and look at the middle panel there, and you'll see a section, uh, the bottom half of that panel, entitled Vision Frame in Purple Ink. Several months ago, back in the summer, the elders on our church session began meeting, praying, seeking God about the years ahead in our church, and asking how we could bear the most fruit that we could possibly bear as a church. We know as a church we're called to fulfill the Great Commission, to reach and build and send people, but is there a way we could do that most effectively? We used a book called God Dreams by a church consultant, Will Mancini, that's designed to help churches clarify their mission, their values, and so forth. And we began asking the question, how can we at River Oaks best glorify God and make disciples? And we felt that it was by building followers of Jesus who were sent to reach others. What we mean by that is that each of us, as we grow in our faith, should embrace our identity as people whom Jesus has sent and is sending into the world around us to show the gospel and to share the gospel, to bring the love of Jesus and the truth of Jesus. We continued our seeking of God. We felt we needed clarity about our discipleship pathway, and you see that at the bottom of the frame. And then on the left side of the frame, you see a section called Values. The values are those things that really uh, identify what the church is like. Suppose you're having lunch with a friend this week and the, and the friend says, tell me about the church you go to. Tell me about River Oaks. I don't want to just know about programs the church has, but what are, you know, tell me about the identity of the church. What's the church really like? And these values are things that you might use, hopefully, to describe the church some of these values, I think, are, are more presently existing than others. Some are more aspirational than others, meaning we hope they'll be true. We aspire to have those be values of our church in the future. 
a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Andrew Wild did a great job talking about the, the value of being Bible-centered. Last week, we talked about the importance of being prayer-fueled, relying on prayer as individuals and corporately as a church. Today, we're going to talk about what it means to be Spirit-led. The first thing I'll stress about this is that the S is capitalized. We're talking about God the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about being guided by our human spirits or our intuition or angelic beings or something like that. We're talking about being guided by God himself, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Now, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it is first important to approach this subject with a very clear understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. He is, first and foremost, God. The passage you see on the screen comes from the book of Acts chapter 5, when the apostle Peter was having to address a man named Ananias who had tried to deceive and lie to the apostles. And Peter says to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And you'll see in the bottom sentence on the screen, why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to God, not lied to man, but to God. In other words, in lying to the Holy Spirit, you have lied to God. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Now, if you're not familiar with the, the idea, the concept, the biblical teaching about the Trinity, we have a little book called Understanding the Trinity. It's free. It's at our resource center, and I would uh, suggest that if you want to dig into the scriptures that teach this belief more thoroughly. But the doctrine of the Trinity is that there's only one God, but he exists eternally as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul could write in the verse you see on the screen uh, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. The Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is the Holy Spirit who is God. So when we're talking about being spirit-led, we're, we're talking about being led by God, the Holy Spirit. So he's God. Secondly, he is God with and in every follower of Jesus. Jesus said these remarkable words in John chapter 14 and verse 16 before he would depart to go to the cross and then ultimately ascend up into heaven. He would say this to his followers. I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper. And notice the word helpers capitalized. Jesus is referring to one who would be there to help his disciples just as he had been there. Another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And notice these words. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit dwells with you, he says, and will be in you. This may be the least understood and least appreciated reality of the typical Christian's life. The indwelling presence 
of God the Holy Spirit. Have you been aware this morning, speaking to those who know you're Christians, of the very presence of the Spirit of God dwelling within you? Has that thought entered your mind today? Did you walk out of your house this morning in conscious fellowship with God the Holy Spirit? who's not only with you, but in the words of Jesus, in you. The Apostle Paul would write the next words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You hear what he's saying? The Holy Spirit has chosen because of what Jesus did on the cross, because He bore the judgment for our sin, to make the body of every believer His own temple. As Jesus said, He's with you, He will be in you. So the Holy Spirit is God. He's God with and in the follower of Jesus. What does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit in life? How do you and I go about life when we get up tomorrow morning and go to school or go to work or wherever we go, being consciously led and guided by the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? What is a Spirit-led life? Well, I think four things are true about a Spirit-led life. First of all, a Spirit-led life is a truth-guided life. The verse we saw a moment ago is one in which Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as both the helper and the spirit of truth. Later in John 16, he again uses the second title when he says to his followers, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So we can know these things with a certainty about the Holy Spirit. He'll guide us into the truth, and he'll glorify Jesus. How does he guide us into the truth? I think one way, and and the primary way, is that the Holy Spirit is the inspirer of the writing of Scripture. In the book of 2 Peter in chapter 1, the Apostle Peter is talking about how God the Holy Spirit gave us Scripture, and he speaks of those who were used to write the Scripture over the years, and says in verse 21 of that chapter, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit so superintended the writing of the prophets and others who would write Scripture that the very words we have received through their writing are the words of God. God oversaw the writing. The Holy Spirit carried them along. He inspired the writing of Scripture. The Holy Spirit also has preserved Scripture through the years and illumines our minds when we read it to understand it. Maybe you've Uh, had this experience or heard someone say something like this, well, the Bible, I used to try to read it, and it was just the most dull and dead book. But since I came to know Jesus, it's like the Bible's a new book. The Holy Spirit is 
illumining your understanding if that is the case. He'll guide you into all truth. The wonderful thing about this is the Holy Spirit will never contradict himself. He will never lead you or me in a way that is in contradiction with the truth that he has already inspired and given. So the scripture provides for us a wonderful overarching guide to protect us from any other guidance that might lead us contrary to the will and the wisdom and the ways of God. Now certainly everything we need to know in life about decisions isn't clearly spelled out in the scripture. For example, what job you're supposed to take, who you're supposed to, to marry. Well, the Bible says we can ask God for wisdom and He'll give us wisdom, but we can always subject that wisdom, that sense of guidance, that leading to the Scripture that He's already inspired. He's the Spirit of truth. He'll lead us in ways that are consistent with this truth. So a Spirit-led life is a a truth-guided life. Secondly, a Spirit-led life is a grace-motivated life. And now we get to our primary passage this morning. It's a passage that Grace read for us a few minutes ago, and it comes from the book of Galatians chapter 5. In reading this passage, I think it's really important to have a little bit of the background of the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote it to address specific issues in the church at Galatia. We get the sense of that in the very first chapter when he writes, I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What does he mean by that? In the early Christian church, certain questions arose quite often. One had to do with whether Christians who've accepted Jesus Christ for their salvation because of what he did on the cross, they've come to God by grace through faith, whether Christians are obligated to keep the Old Testament law in order to really be saved. So is it the grace of God or is it grace plus keeping the law? This was particularly a question uh, with regard to circumcision because circumcision in the Old Testament was the sign that God gave Abraham for all of the males uh, who would be of his people as a mark of their covenant identity with God. And so many were coming into the church as at Galatia and saying, oh yes, you must be circumcised if you're really going to be saved. So is it grace plus law. Another question they were asking is, if you're saved by grace alone, if, if Jesus has done it all, paid it all, our works have nothing to do with it, can you just indulge the flesh however you want? If we're free, are we free to commit as much sexual immorality or get as drunk as we want? These types of things. And so that's kind of the background against which this is written. So he writes these words now we see in chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, what he means by that is if you accept it as necessary for your right standing with God. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You were severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So Paul's making it pretty clear. By grace you're saved through faith, not by adherence to all the teachings of the law. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, he'll later say, regarding this matter of whether you can indulge in all kinds of sins, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, what I think he's saying essentially is this. The gospel assures us that Jesus Christ, when he was crucified, when he was hung on that cross, Jesus the one who never sinned, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus the second person of the Trinity, he took on himself the penalty for our law breaking, yours and mine, our inability to perfectly keep this Old Testament law, every violation against God. Our inability to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. Our inability to humanly do it, Jesus bore the judgment. The Holy Spirit applies that grace to our lives and where grace has come and faith is genuine, the Spirit of God is at work. And the Apostle Paul says in this passage, there is going to be a battle between the works of the flesh, and the works of the Spirit. And he writes, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. He goes on and lists them out. His point is simply that the Holy Spirit who brings us to the grace of Christ and faith in what He's done, now is it work in us to live differently. And we live differently as the Holy Spirit cultivates what the Apostle Paul calls fruit. So that a Spirit-led life is not only a grace-motivated life, it becomes over time a fruit-filled life. And he writes, in contrast to these works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, that which the Spirit brings to your life, that which the Spirit cultivates, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that God chose to use the image of fruit to express these qualities. 
Because we all know that fruit, when growing on a tree, does not appear immediately mature overnight. There is a process of growth. And there is a process of spiritual growth. So that when I look at these fruit, I, I recognize I'm far from fully mature in these things. I have a long way to go in cultivating patience and kindness and goodness and self-control and these other things that we, we see here. But where grace has come and where faith is genuine, the Holy Spirit is at work. And He is cultivating, He is developing in every follower of Jesus these expressions known as the fruit of the Spirit. So that we can say, a Spirit-led life is a fruit-filled life. You and I can look at our lives to say and, and, and evaluate to a degree uh, how much we're being led by the Spirit by seeing the degree to which these fruit are growing. The first one listed is love. I suspect that is purposeful. I don't know for sure, but I suspect the Lord put it first because of its great, great importance. Because in other passages, we see that one of the things the Holy Spirit will always do in a believer is bring this quality of love. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. If we want to know if a person is full of the Holy Spirit, we can observe whether that person is full of love. A couple weeks ago, I was reading through the book of Romans, and I was struck by that next verse in Romans 15, verse 30. I'd never noticed it this way before, but the Apostle Paul, as he's coming near to the close of this letter to the Romans, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit. Now, when Paul appeals, he often appeals on something that is certain, that is established, that is absolute. I appeal to you by the mercies of God, by the mercies of Christ, things that are so abundantly true, such established realities. He's making his appeal on that basis. And he says, I appeal to you by the love of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of holy love. And where he is present, he brings the love of Christ. Love for God, love for other people. A spirit-led life will be a love-filled life, a fruit-filled life. It'll also be a grace-motivated life and a truth-guided life. And then finally, to be led by the Spirit is to be living an empowered life. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We'd see later in the book of Acts that this promise of the Holy Spirit and the power he brings was not just for the early apostles, but for every person in every generation who would call Jesus Lord. And the reality is, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, you have been called into a remarkable 
partnership with God. And it's a partnership in which God has appointed you to be His witness in this world. He wants you to go into your sphere of influence, whether you're going to school tomorrow, or work, or in your neighborhood this afternoon. He has appointed you to go as His witness. To show the gospel by the way you live, and to share the gospel verbally given the right occasion. No one else can do your witnessing for you. There are certain people God wants you to to reach. And in part, He wants you to reach them because He wants you to have the privilege of reaching them. He wants you to have that great privilege of partnering with Him and showing the gospel and sharing the gospel. I think we need to grasp this calling, every one of us, and recognize the power to do this does not come from ourselves. It does not come from ourselves. I remember as a young Christian, when I first, I was in, I was in college, and I went to this um, guy's small group, and the guy leading the group wanted us to go out on the campus at UNC Chapel Hill and hand out this little gospel tract called the Four Spiritual Laws. And I said, there's absolutely no way I could do that. There's no way I'd ever do that. God hasn't called me to do it, I said. It's not my personality. He hasn't wired me that way. And the others in my group felt the same way. I think even the leader felt that way. The day we were supposed to go out and do that, the four of us sat down on a little bench and just talked. We might have prayed, but I don't think we gave out any tracts. Well, over time, I'm not suggesting everybody's got to go out giving tracts here. I'm not suggesting that. But every follower of Jesus is called to be a witness for him. A witness for him. I was having lunch with a member of our church this week in a restaurant. And before the waitress had been there two seconds, before she took our order, before she brought us anything or even handed us menus, he said, we're going to pray in a minute. And when we pray, is there anything we can pray for you about? That was Dan Mastro, if any of you know Dan. He's really good at talking to people. I thought, gosh, he, he didn't give me a chance to do that. But he did it. And our wife said, yeah, there's something I'd like you to pray for me about. And he went, went on to invite her to church and all that. But we have opportunities to just go in the world and show the gospel and share the gospel. So, we're called to be witnesses. But we recognize the power for doing that does not come from ourselves. It does not matter if God has made us particularly gifted speakers. It doesn't matter if you have a seminary degree. Jesus didn't say you'll receive power when you get those things, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so, a Spirit-led life, we can say then, is a truth-guided life, guided by the Spirit of truth. It's a grace-motivated life, one whereby we are not under law, but under the grace of God. It is a fruit-filled life, as the Holy Spirit is causing spiritual fruit to grow in our lives. And it's an empowered life. 
empowered with gifts from the Holy Spirit, empowered for witnessing. And so it raises, I think, a question for us. How do we, how do we experience that more fully? How can you and I be led by the Holy Spirit? I want to suggest three things that I think are important for a spirit-led life. The first one is this, to honor His presence. If you were a Christian, let me simply ask you this. Are you living your life as if God the Holy Spirit does not exist or does not dwell within you? I think one of the most serious things we can do against the Holy Spirit is to ignore Him. Acknowledge Him. Honor His presence. The knowledge of His presence influences how we live. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying when he wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. To the degree we, we grasp this reality of the Holy Spirit living within, we will we will behave differently. Richard Lovelace, um, he's deceased now, but he was a professor, a seminary professor, who wrote a book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And it's really a classic book on renewal, spiritual renewal in the church at, at large and in individual lives. And he says too often the relationship between a Christian, a believer in the Holy Spirit, is like the relationship between a husband and wife in a bad marriage. They live under the same roof and maybe share some of the same services. The, you know, one may prepare meals or wash dishes or something like that. But there's really little joy in the relationship. There's very little communication. There's little fellowship or true communion. And so he says, what should be done to reverse this situation? He said, well, first we should walk throughout the day in a relationship of communion and communication with the Holy Spirit. Looking to the Holy Spirit and all those roles Jesus said he would fulfill. Helper, comforter, encourager, spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth. The one who brings power, the grace of God. Power to do everything God calls you to. Honor His presence. Acknowledge His presence. Don't go about life as if He doesn't exist. Secondly, seek. Seek His controlling influence. Why is it that some people seem to have more of the, the Spirit's influence and fruit, guidance and power evident in their lives? I think that to some degree at least, it's because they seek to have His control, His guidance, His power in their lives. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Why would he use that particular contrast? Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. I think it's because when you're drunk with wine, you're under the control of the alcohol, physically, 
mentally, the thought processes. So in contrast to that, be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to be under His control, to be yielded to His control, to receive His gifts, to rely upon His power. Do you ask God to be in full control, yielding your life to Him, seeking the manifestation of His power and His gifts and His works in your life? Seek His controlling influence. And thirdly, obey His guidance. It's an interesting verse in the book of Acts chapter 8 where Philip who was a deacon in the early Christian church, but a deacon who became an evangelist. And an interesting thing happened to Philip. Acts chapter 8 tells us the Spirit of God told him to go join this chariot. So Philip goes to the chariot. There's a man from Ethiopia, and he's reading the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and he doesn't understand it. And so Philip gets up in the chariot, explains that the passage is about Jesus, and explains the gospel of Jesus to him. The man becomes a believer. They get out of the chariot. When they see water, he goes in the water and baptizes him. But how does it all start? It starts with the Spirit speaking to Philip. We're not told how the Spirit spoke to Philip. I wonder, did he speak in audible words that he heard? Maybe. I've never had God speak to me in audible words. Perhaps was it just in a, uh, thoughts impressed upon his mind? Philip joined that chariot. We don't know. But the fact is, he obeyed. Sometimes in life, I think the, the leading of the Spirit is very, very, very gentle. Do you know we're actually commanded not to grieve the Holy Spirit? Not to quench the Holy Spirit? I see this passage and I think, he's God. How could I grieve him? How could I possibly quench the omnipotent Holy Spirit of God? How could that be? Often his leaning is God, it's just very gentle. You or I might be looking at a computer screen, watching something on television, Something comes on, and all of a sudden, in your heart of hearts, you know, that's not good. That is dishonoring to Jesus. That is not good for my soul. Yet in my flesh, there's a part of me that really wants to keep it on and watch it. But I sense that God within is saying, cut that off. Maybe you're having your devotional time. You're reading your Bible. You're praying. And out of the blue, you get a thought that you should call an old friend you have not talked to in years and see, to see what's going on with them. And so you do. And you call your friend. And sure enough, there is a significant need that you have the opportunity to pray for. Maybe you're buying something in a store. This week, and there's a, a, a rep there, or a clerk, somebody helping you, and as they're helping you, you, you feel a compassion for the person. 
You just feel a compassion for the person. You, you don't know why. But instead of dismissing it, you say, you know, you've really helped me a lot. I just want to, I, I believe in prayer. Is there anything I can pray for you about? And the person breaks down. Is that the leading of the Spirit? I don't know. I'd always check it with consistency with the inspired Scripture, the Word of God. But I've found in life, the more I'm willing to obey what I think might be His prompting when consistent with Scripture, the more we see Him work. May we be people who are led by the Spirit more fully so that when we go out into the world, we sense His guidance, we obey His leading. And as a result, we have his power to bring his gospel and be witnesses to the world around us. Would you join me as we pray about that this morning? Father, whenever I think about this sort of thing, I realize that there have often been times I believe I have grieved your spirit or quenched your spirit. I suspect we all have. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness. We ask that you make us more yielded to your holy presence, more desirous of your controlling influence, more seeking of truth in Scripture, and more dependent upon your illumination to grasp the realities of your word. Make us people who are led by your Spirit, we ask. In the name of Jesus. Amen.